That's not what I meant to say. If you missed last week, that's what I meant to say. We began our, our two-part Christmas series in which we essentially looked at the, the first half of the nativity through the eyes of Mary. And you can catch up on that through the website if you'd like, if you've missed it. But today we're going to be exploring the second half of Luke's Christmas account in chapter 2. And like last week, we'll open up our time with a Christmas carol. This morning's message in looking at Luke chapter 2, verses 1 through 20, it's titled, Have You, Have You Heard the Angels? And as you might guess, I'll be reading from Angels We Have Heard on High, sweetly singing o'er the plains, and the mountains in reply echoing their joyous strains, Gloria in excelsis Deo. Shepherds, why this jubilee? Why your joyous strains prolong? What the gladsome tidings be which inspire your heavenly song? Come to Bethlehem and see him whose birth the angels sing. Come adore on bended knee, Christ the Lord, the newborn King. See him in a manger laid, Jesus Lord of heaven and earth. Mary Joseph, lend your aid. Sing with us our Savior's birth. Angels We Have Heard on High, it was originally a French Christmas carol, uh, first published in the 1840s and then later translated into English uh, uh, 20 years uh, some odd later, with some lyrical and uh, musical changes since. But the gist of the song, it invites the singer to come alongside of the angels and the shepherds as they rejoice in the heavenly proclamation that the Messiah has been born. Gloria in excelsis Deo, which of course is Latin for glory to God in the highest. Like so many classic Christmas carols, this one too challenges the one singing to consider its meaning and to come to Bethlehem and see him whose birth the angels sing. To determine and to decide for yourself what you will do. And so once again, we'll examine more of Luke's account of these events. Today, reading from Luke 2. And as we do so, we'll think about this question, have we heard the angels sing? And, and the message that they shared and, and all that unfolded following that. Has that message impacted our lives? That's the question this morning. In a real and in a lasting way. Are you and I experiencing what the shepherds did? The, the wonder and the awe of welcoming that newborn king. We'll begin this morning with verses 1 through 7 where we find that those circumstances surrounding Jesus' birth were anything but ideal. To put it mildly, they were, as our first point expresses inconvenient. Verse 1, And it came to pass in those days that a decree went out from Caesar Augustus that all the world should be registered. And this census first took place while Quirinius was governing Syria. So all went to be registered, everyone to his own city. Joseph also went up from Galilee out of the city of Nazareth into Judea to the city of David, which is called Bethlehem because he was of the house and lineage of David, to be registered with Mary, his betrothed wife, who was with child. 
So it was that while they were there, the days were completed for her to be delivered. And she brought forth her firstborn son and wrapped him in swaddling cloths and laid him in a manger because there was no room for them in the inn. Let's pray before we dig into these verses. Father, as we, as we consider these verses, Lord, this passage that's so familiar, Lord, ubiquitous in some ways to this season. God, we pray that you would bring a quickening to our hearts and souls. Lord, that there would be a freshness, a fresh revelation in our hearts. God, as to what all of this means and, and how you intend for it to impact our lives today. God, in a way that would change us forever. Lord, I pray that. I pray that wherever we find ourselves this morning, God, those dark places in our souls, Lord, the weights, the burdens that we're carrying, Lord, pain. Jesus, that this would be an opportunity in a moment when we read about your incarnation, the very plan of salvation being manifest on the stage of humanity in such an unexpected way. Lord, that, God, you would invade our hearts with that truth and reality. Jesus, that we would receive the power of all that this represents. Lord Jesus, that that first Christmas, all it meant then and what it means today for us, what it can mean. Jesus, we pray that you would speak to us, that you would open our eyes, that we might behold wonderful things from your word this morning. In your name we pray, amen. Well, Caesar Augustus, historically known also as Octavian, was originally one of three who ruled Rome following the death of Julius Caesar in 44 BC. And eventually he fought his way to the top beyond the other two and was the first to proclaim himself as sole emperor of Rome. And at that time, the empire had stretched from modern-day Rome uh, across the Mediterranean into Asia Minor, down through Israel, and out beyond and to the northern tip of Africa. It was under Augustus's rule that what is now known as Pax Romana began, that through the strength and power of the Romans, the various peoples that found themselves under her rule enjoyed a certain peace, Pax in Latin, an order which Rome enforced and sustained. Now it was this Caesar Augustus, according to verse one, who ordered his subjects to be registered. And Luke points out that this was during the time in which Quirinius ruled Syria, which matters because at this time, that jurisdiction, it included the land of Israel. And from an apologetic standpoint, it, it matters. It's helpful because uh, secular history confirms that these two figures did in fact rule during this time in the early first century. And what's interesting is that for years, skeptics took issue with Luke's gospel account because uh, no evidence could be found for the existence of a Quirinius, but since that time, uh, he has been uh, confirmed 
as having ruled, and, and it's just kind of an encouragement that when we see dates and facts mentioned in the Bible, they correlate to reality. Well, what was this registration that's referred to? While there were other taxes that were more regularly paid, under this order, each had to actually return to their hometown and there register. And while doing so, they, they paid a fee that was imposed by Caesar. So this was like a census. We understand those. We have them every 10 years. You're, at least you're supposed to participate. You get the form in the mail, and in, in some cases, census workers actually come to your front door. But in, in this case, a road trip and taxation were rolled into it. Verse 3, so all went to be registered, everyone to his own city. So you would travel to the hometown of your ancestors. It was a way to include everyone and to be certain in an, in an orderly manner that no one escaped being accounted for. For Joseph, this meant a trip to Bethlehem. And it was in the south as his family lineage, as well as that of Mary's, was traced back to King David himself. And historically, this was his birthplace and hometown. Verse 6, so it was that while they were there, the days were completed for her to be delivered. And she brought forth her firstborn son and wrapped him in swaddling cloths and laid him in a manger because there was no room for them in the inn. What an ordeal. Joseph and Mary had traveled all the way from Nazareth to Bethlehem. Now today, if you take the toll roads, the trip from Nazareth to Bethlehem is actually about an hour and 45 minutes, less than two hours. And technically, if you're like one of these endurance runners, you could make it in a day. But in that time, uh, on you know roads that probably meandered a bit, and with Mary being very pregnant, it, it would likely have taken at least a couple of days. I, I, if men, if you're like me, you like to power through with road trips. I hate stopping to go to the bathroom. Somebody will say they're hungry. I see an exit. I'll pretend I don't see it just to move a little bit further. You keep pressing forward. And, and Joseph probably did not get to do that, I'm guessing. But anyway, um, it probably took him a little while longer than, than you know, maybe we would have liked. But um, they couldn't then just show up in Bethlehem and, and, you know, cut to the chase and get done what needed to be done. They would have to find a room. There was no Expedia.com or Priceline or anything like that. Once they got there, they had to find accommodations get settled in, and then we would assume they had to wait their turn in order to register and pay their taxes. There, I don't know how many tax offices there would have been. Bethlehem was a small town, and so it's possible there was only one, and there would have been a line. We don't know how it was all organized, but I'm seeing this as being multiple days. Everyone who traced their lineage back to David had to crowd into Bethlehem. There are a lot of people doing the same thing. Accommodations would have been, would have been tight. So tight, in fact, that Joseph and Mary had a, a hard time finding anywhere to stay. It was, again, a small place, and so there weren't a lot of choices to begin with. Uh, there's, it's referenced here that there was no room in, in the inn, and we don't know how many inns there were. But verse 7 tells us very simply that they laid him in a manger. It was a feeding trough. 
meaning that she gave birth around animals in some sort of a barn because there was no room for them in the inn. They'd gone from one end of the town to the other, desperately looking for a room, but to no avail. This was all that was available, some sort of a stable for animals. And instead of a crib, Jesus was placed in a manger, a feeding trough. Everything about this unfolding drama seemed ill-timed and ill-planned, inconvenient. A bride in her ninth month of pregnancy, travel and taxes, the timing was off from a, a human perspective. But this was exactly what God had planned. And there's something in all of this that, that speaks to the very heart of God and the mission that Jesus came to carry out. The birth of Christ was without a doubt inconvenient. There was little about this delivery that was easy, comfortable, or what you would expect. But frankly, this very closely resembles the whole of his life his mission, his calling, and consequently ours in following him. He's being born into and through inconvenience. God having chosen that, it speaks to his humility that our God reveals and manifests himself and his redeeming love as a servant. Even in his birth, he's an example to you and I. The Apostle Paul writes about this to the Philippians in his letter to them in chapter 2, verse 5. Let this mind or let this attitude be in you, which was also in Christ Jesus, who being in the form of God did not consider it robbery to be equal with God, but made himself of no reputation, taking the form of a bondservant and coming in the likeness of men. And being found in appearance as a man, he humbled himself. And I think that began with his, with his very birth and became obedient to the point of death, even to the death of the cross. And of course, it continued forward to Calvary. Jesus himself, he pressed the disciples about, about this. At, at one time in particular, when they were vying for position, James and John, among themselves and, and the other disciples were upset by it. In Mark chapter 10, verse 42, but Jesus called them to himself and said to them, you know that those who are considered uh, rulers over the Gentiles lord it over them and their great ones exercise authority over them. He's telling them, this is how the world behaves, gentlemen. This is, this is not how my kingdom works though. Yet it shall not be so among you. And he could speak with authority because what he's about to say describes how he has lived from the very beginning. But whoever desires to become great among you shall be your servant. And whoever of you desires to be first shall be slave of all. For even the Son of Man did not come to be served, but to serve and to give his life as a ransom for many. Though of royal lineage, Jesus was born to a poor family in a small town, largely unnoticed, heralded by, by angels, but acknowledged that night only by shepherds. 
He chose humility. The path he walked for our redemption was one of planned inconvenience, a road of service. So what about our lives? How do you and I, how do we react when faced with opportunities to live like a servant? I've said it before because I heard it many, many years ago and, and was really impacted by it because I was convicted. The best way to know whether or not we have the heart of a servant is how we behave when we are treated like one. When someone actually looks at you and responds to you as though you are a servant, a slave. Now, I don't know about you, but that's when my heart starts to, well, I say heart, that sounds nice. What I mean is my flesh starts to rise up within me and want to fight for my rights. But, but a servant, a slave, they don't have any rights. And that's what Christ has called us to. How do we react when faced with those opportunities and moments? Think of all the indignities that our Savior faced. And they started with his very birth, with the incarnation. Not even born in a, in a, in a house, in a room, but in a, in a stable. Some think maybe it was a cave placed there in a, in a manger, in a feeding trough. How do we handle when, when we're called on or, or the opportunity is thrust upon us to walk through inconveniences? Do we embrace those circumstances, seeing them as another by, way by which we can follow Jesus, grow more deeply into his likeness? We're called to have that same mind and attitude that of our Savior who condescended from, from heaven itself to be born like one of us in the most common way conceivable, to wash our feet, to bring healing and wholeness into our lives, to save us from our sin. Bethlehem, being born into a manger, it was only the beginning of a, a life of inconveniences, a life lived in humility, one that you and I are called to follow. Well, let's move on now and look at verses 1 through, or rather, excuse me, 8 through 14 as we consider our second point this morning, unexpected, unexpected. Because the manner in which Jesus came, it was inconvenient, but it was also unexpected. Many things surrounding his birth. Verse 8 now, there were in the same country shepherds living out in the fields, keeping watch over their flocks by night. And behold, an angel of the Lord stood before them, and the glory of the Lord shone around them, and they were greatly afraid. Then the angel said to them, Do not be afraid, for behold, I bring you glad or good tidings of great joy, which will be to all people. For there is born to you this day in the city of David a Savior, who is Christ the Lord. And this will be a sign to you. You will find a babe wrapped in swaddling cloths, lying in a manger. And suddenly there was with the angel a multitude of the heavenly host, praising God and saying, Glory to God in the highest, and on earth peace, goodwill toward men. And so about the time that Mary gave birth, there on the outskirts of town, on the hills surrounding this little city were shepherds with their flocks of sheep. 
and to these unlikely representatives of the town of Bethlehem and the nation of Israel came the announcement that a very special baby had been born. This was overwhelming. And not just because they were shepherds and somehow more common than others, though that was true. Like we considered last week, angelic appearances were pretty much always something that left the individual or, or group in this case terrified. And so just as with Mary and Joseph here too, the first thing the angel declared was, do not be afraid. Verse 10, for behold, I bring you good tidings of great joy, which will be to all people. For there is born to you this day in the city of David, a savior who is Christ the Lord. These were good tidings, glad tidings or, or good news. And it was for everyone. This very day, a child had been born in the city of David, Bethlehem, on whose hills these shepherds were watching their sheep. And this is no ordinary child. This is Christ the Lord, Messiah of Israel. But how to find this newborn Savior? Well, his circumstances and his surroundings would be a bit unusual. The baby is not going to be found in a home surrounded by uh, adoring extended family. No, he would be alone except for Joseph and, and Mary, his parents, and a, and a host of barn animals, as that was where he was born, in a manger. And even for shepherds, that was weird. Not a proper baby blanket or, or cradle, but rags and whatever else Mary and Joseph had brought along with them. And just maybe they'd anticipated something like this happening because after all she was great with child though I imagine they thought they'd at least be able to secure a room which of course had not worked out needless to say this baby who had deserved far more was born in the most unexpected way laid to sleep in a manger but these humble and seemingly ill-planned circumstances only spoke to God's greater plan. He was coming in such a lowly and unexpected way. It spoke to his mission and those for whom he had come. Jesus's birth, it wasn't announced to potentates and royal families, though magi or wise men uh, who were looking for him would later come. His arrival, although announced by angels, was first made known to the most common of people, shepherds. Now, there's some debate over just how shepherds were viewed in the first century. But this we know for sure, that their work was dirty. <laughs> As working with farm animals only can be, they slept outside in, the, in tents. There was inherent danger as... Uh, they had to contend with the elements and uh, wild animals who saw their flock as prey. They didn't enjoy the same stability as others had and that they lived as, as nomads, kind of like Bedouins, moving their herds to where the fields and water were. Certainly they weren't held in, in as high esteem as the religious leaders like Pharisees or Sadducees. They were ranchers, they were farmers, they were chasing sheep, they were carrying uh, for the, the young lambs. 
but they were the first to know. God chose them. In contrast to those religious leaders who were known to look down on them. In fact, history does record that the rabbis believed them to be dishonest and lawbreakers. Philo, a contemporary of Jesus's, who we'll call a Jewish philosopher, though he didn't hold to uh, the, the teachings of the law, uh, he wrote that shepherds were mean and inglorious. At the very least, they probably weren't going to win a popularity contest in Bethlehem, let alone would they be expected to the first to be the ones to hear of the Messiah's birth. It was an odd move. It was unexpected. Verse 13, and suddenly there was with the angel a multitude of the heavenly host praising God and saying, glory to God in the highest and on earth peace, goodwill toward men. Though at first it was only one angel announcing the son of God's birth, he was quickly joined by a multitude, we read, who cried out in, in a chorus praising God. I think Jesus' birth in a small town, first announced to shepherds, was designed to communicate to Israel, to the world, and to you and I, that God cares about small towns, small people, the overlooked, the underserved, the poor, the unappreciated. It captures the heart of God in so many ways. The Messiah came for the hurting and for the weak. Isaiah 35, we read there, the prophet had foretold that he would do this very thing. Verse five, then the eyes of the blind shall be opened and the ears of the deaf shall be unstopped. Then the lame shall leap like a deer and the tongue of the dumb sing. When John the Baptist questioned Jesus, sending his messengers to him while he was in prison, asking him, are you the one or do we look for another? Jesus answered back to that forerunner of his, John, and quoted to him this very passage and its fulfillment through his life. Not a military leader, not a political revolutionary, as so many wanted, but one who cared about the hurting, the poor, the suffering, and the marginalized. There's still today an unlikeliness, an unexpectedness to God's message, his methods, his messengers, and those that he seeks to reach. I love how this is expressed in 1 Corinthians chapter 1, verse 26. For you see your calling, brethren, that not many wise according to the flesh, not many mighty, not many noble are called. But God has chosen the foolish things of this world to put to shame the wise. And God has chosen the weak things of the world to put to shame the things which are mighty. And the base things of the world and the things which are despised, God has chosen. And the things which are not to bring to nothing the things which are. That no flesh should glory in his presence. I think about how we set up nativity scenes that are supposed to capture the simplicity of that first Christmas. We put them in front of great cathedrals, and in some cases, city halls, and even our own homes. And there's an irony that's present there, in that our Savior, the one that we're proclaiming, was born in a barn that's set up in front of these, these great 
dwelling places that we've prepared for ourselves. And I'm not saying it's bad that you live in a home or if you have a nativity scene that there's something wrong with that, unless we're missing what it captures and represents. That even still today, what Jesus experienced when he first entered into this world, it speaks to something of what God intended then and now for his son and savior, that he would reach, that he would redeem those from similarly low places and stations in life. And that we would recognize and understand that, that his mission was never to make us comfortable. It was to help us, to bring us to a place where we'd humble ourselves and recognize our poverty and our need for his life. The very manner of Jesus' entry into this world, it pictures for us the way in which he would live and minister because nothing would change for him from that moment forward. The direction and the focus of his calling. It, it, it wasn't those who were well that were in need of a physician but the sick. For you and I today, the question is, how, how are we to live this all out? In a sense, what are the, and what were the angels proclaiming? James, he speaks to this in chapter two, verse one, in, in the context of the church. My brethren, do not hold the faith of our Lord Jesus Christ, the Lord of glory, with partiality. For if there should come into your assembly a man with gold rings and fine apparel, and there should also come in a, a poor man in filthy clothes, and you pay attention to the one wearing the fine clothes and say to him, you sit here in a good place, and say to the poor man, you stand there or sit here at my footstool, have you not shown partiality among yourselves and become judges with evil thoughts? How do we respond on a Sunday morning? How do we respond in, in maintaining and managing our own family gatherings? Do we welcome those that maybe make us a little bit uncomfortable? Listen, my beloved brethren, has God not chosen the poor of this world to be rich in faith and heirs of the kingdom which he promised to those who love him? whether in our relationship to one another, in the church, to the lost in the world around us, or in our work or homes, we're to live out this same unexpectedness. There's to be something of that in our lives, yours and mine, where we're stepping outside of the boundaries of what's culturally comfortable. Not favoring the popular or the rich, but seeing through the eyes of Jesus. Recognizing each person around us as having special inherent value, as having been made in the image of God, with a sensitivity to the weak and hurting, just as our Savior had and, and marked his life and ministry. That's to mark ours as well. It's also to mark our own hearts, because that may not be your personal background. You may say, well, what am I supposed to do? I'm not poor, Pastor. But once again, what God's looking for in our hearts is a poverty of spirit, a recognition of our need for Him, and that we would have a heart 
for those who have both physical and spiritual need. A sensitivity to the weak and hurting. It marked Jesus' life and ministry, and it should mark ours as, as well. We're called to remember that whether we like it or not, we are the foolish things of this world, which God has chosen, and we're to have a heart for the same, be they poor, ignored, or hurting, the shepherds of our time. Now, lastly, as we consider verses 15 through 20, we find all of this left the shepherds and no doubt Joseph and Mary as well and others who heard about it amazed verse 15 so it was when the angels had gone away from them into heaven that the shepherds said to one another let us now go to Bethlehem and see this thing that has come to pass which the Lord has made known to us and they came with haste and found Mary and Joseph and the babe lying in a manger now, when they had seen him, they made widely known the saying which was told them concerning this child. And all those who heard it marveled at those things which were told them by the shepherds. But Mary kept all these things and pondered them in her heart. Then the shepherds returned, glorifying and praising God for all the things that they had heard and seen as it was told them. Well, this immense and, and dramatic scene, it finally subsides as the angels fade into the heavens and the shepherds are left in wonder and awe, amazed. What would they do? Well, if an angel or, or a whole group of them appeared to you with very specific instructions, you would probably do what they told you to do. I'm assuming most of us, let's go check it out. Quickly, they, they hurried to find these things out for themselves. Off they went to find this babe wrapped in swaddling cloths and, and lying in a manger. And of course, they were just as the angels had said. Verse 16, and they came with haste and found Mary and Joseph and the babe lying in a manger. I wonder how long it took them to find Jesus and his parents. I, they would have asked around. I'm guessing they were loud. They probably woke up the town trying to figure out where they were. But a young couple who just had a baby that was allegedly born in a manger narrowed the field pretty quickly because though there might have been others who had recently had a child, none beside Jesus were resting in a feeding trough or were born in a barn. I imagine it going something like this. Sorry, we, we didn't have room, but, but I saw them going that way. The, the first place the shepherds arrived uh, would have said to them. The next, well, yes, I did see them, but we rented out our place, our, our, our last room just before they came. I told them to go to my, my cousin's house. They, they have room, I think. And no, we sold out just before they got here, but I knew of a friend with a back room. Really, it's a barn. I mean, it's where, you know, my mother-in-law stays when she comes to visit, but it's right over there by the well. And, and yes, I heard a baby crying not long ago. That, that poor young girl must have, have given birth out there. I felt bad, but what could we do? Our own family was visiting and, and sharing beds, as it were. Something along these lines, moving from house to house, from inn to inn, until finally they found that place where Joseph and Mary were just as the angels had told them it would be. Verse 17, now when they had seen him, they made widely known the saying which was told them concerning this child. 
And all those who heard it marveled at those things which were told them by the shepherd. Only these shepherds saw Jesus for themselves. Once these shepherds, excuse me, once these shepherds saw Jesus for themselves, they couldn't help but tell others. They had to. Verse 17 says that they, they made all of this widely known. They made it known by their search, because I'm sure they told them who they were looking for. But then afterwards, once they had seen Jesus, they kept telling people. Those who heard, they marveled. No doubt wondering, is it possible? Has the Messiah finally come? Could this be our long-awaited deliverer and king, the one for whom Israel had been waiting for hundreds of years? Mary, verse 19 says, but Mary kept all these things and pondered them in her heart. Then the, the shepherds returned, glorifying and praising God for all the things that they had heard and seen as it was told them. Mary, she, she treasured and stored these experiences up in her heart, thinking and meditating on all of this. The shepherds rejoicing as they returned to their flocks. These last few verses, they, they have a, a glow about them. There's a, a radiance as I read them and, and, and see that the, the passage just overflows with a wonder, an amazement. This was all really happening. The shepherds were overcome with joy. Joseph and Mary, uncomfortable, no doubt, but thrilled at the birth of this special child. And the town of Bethlehem, as, as many as heard, were struck with, with an awe, a strange and unexplainable excitement at the news that right here, allegedly, the long-awaited Messiah had been born. Christmas should still hold for you and I something of this wonder. I pray that it does. Today's message title taken from that old Christmas carol asks, have you heard the angels? Really heard? Do we understand just how miraculous and spectacular that night was? How glorious but how difficult these events were. Do we still experience a sense of, of wonder and awe, or have we allowed this all to become too familiar? You might be here this morning tired, maybe depressed, struggling, hurting, maybe ashamed, maybe wondering if all of this is for you. Jesus was born into weakness and pain. He was born for the hurting. Everything about his entry into this world, it screams that to us. Peace on earth, goodwill toward men. That's for you and I. The Psalms are one of the best places to go in Scripture to help us find expression for worship. The psalmist writes in the 95th chapter, O come, let us worship and bow down. Let us kneel before the Lord our Maker, for He is our God and we are the people of His pasture. 
and the sheep of his hand. Jesus' birth, it was first announced to shepherds. He, the son of, of David, that shepherd king of Israel, Jesus would be the good shepherd who calls us his sheep. We, his people, the very sheep of his hand. It's only right that we would fall before him in worship, that we would especially today in a fresh way see the nativity through the lens afforded us in Luke 2, considering in a new way that the scene to which the angels called the shepherds, a savior born in weakness sent to the weak. It seems too good to be true and yet it is, and the reality should change us. It should cause praise and worship to well up within us. And I'll, I'll share this final passage from the prophet Isaiah. And as I do so, I want to challenge us to make ourselves vulnerable before, before the Lord, to expose weakness before him that maybe we're, we're not normally inclined to. That we would humble ourselves before him, seeing that the, the God of all creation, he could have lowered himself no further than he did. That he might become to you and I our savior. That he might bind up our wounds that he might become for us our redeemer, that his blood might be applied to our hearts, to the, the darkest and the most painful places there, the most stark rebellion against him. But we have to expose ourselves. We have to be willing to meet him there to lower ourselves to where he went. Isaiah 40, verse 28. Have you not known, have you not heard? The everlasting God, the Lord, the creator of the ends of the earth, neither faints nor is weary. His understanding is unsearchable. He gives power to the weak. And to those who have no might, he increases strength. Even the youth shall faint and be weary, and the young men shall utterly fall. But those who wait on the Lord shall renew their strength. They shall mount up with wings like eagles. They shall run and not be weary. They shall walk and not faint. You see, Jesus, he, he wants to enter into our weakness, to our suffering and pain today. <laughs> but we have to open our hearts to him. We have to see our need, not only at the manger, but at, at Calvary, at the cross, that there he laid his life down for us. We'll close with a reading from Max Lucado's In the Manger. He writes, he became flesh and dwelt among us. He placed his hand on the shoulder of humanity and said, you're something special. Untethered by time, God sees us all. From the backwoods of Virginia to the busiest district of London, from the 
Vikings to the astronauts, from the cave dwellers to the kings, from the hut builders to the finger pointers to the rock stackers, he sees us. Vagabonds and ragamuffins all, he sees us before we were born, and he loves what he sees. The star maker turns to us one by one and says, you are my child. I love you dearly. I'm aware, aware that someday you'll turn from me and mock, walk away, but I want you to know I've already provided a way back. And to prove it, he did something extraordinary. Stepping from the throne, he removed his robe of light and wrapped himself in skin, pigmented human skin. The light of the universe entered a dark, wet womb. He whom angels worship nestled himself in the placenta of a peasant, was birthed into the cold night, and then slept on cow's hay. He goes on, can anything make me stop loving you, God asks. Watch me speak your language, sleep in your earth, and feel your hurts. Behold the maker of sight and sound as he sneezes, coughs, and blows his nose. You wonder if I understand how you feel? Look into the dancing eyes of a kid in Nazareth. That's God walking to school. Ponder the toddler at Mary's table. That's God spilling his milk. You wonder how long my love will last? Find your answer on a split cross on a craggy hill. That's me you see up there. Your maker, your God, nails stabbed and bleeding, covered with spit and sin soaked. That's your sin I'm feeling. That's your death I'm dying. That's your resurrection I'm living. <coughs> That's how much I love you. And that Savior, we can't help but worship in amazement. He's inviting you and I to come to him, weary and heavy laden, to receive peace and forgiveness, to be made whole. Come to Bethlehem and see him whose birth the angels sing. Come, adore on bended knee. Christ the Lord, the new-born King. Stand with me and we'll pray as we close our time. Father, we thank you that you crossed the boundary of time, of, of heaven and earth to enter this sin-stained world. God, to... enter into our experience. God, that you might take on yourself our shame, our humanity and our humility, that you might stand in our place and be judged for our sin. Lord, we humble ourselves and in weakness we say to you that we need you. Thank you, Jesus, for coming, for becoming our Savior and our Redeemer. Thank you that your blood was shed, that your life was laid down, that our sin might be washed away, that our lives, that our very identity might be transferred from the kingdom of darkness to the kingdom of light. Oh, Lord, may we not stand outside 
of receiving that gift today. And as we move into this final song and prepare to close this morning's service, I just want to give you the opportunity, whether you're far away from the Lord or you've never come to him to begin with, if you've not received his gift of life, if you've not had your sins forgiven and entered into relationship with him, the Bible calls it being born again. This is your day to humble yourself, to come to him realizing that he came to you, that he not only became a man, but that he also would later lay his life down at the cross. That your guilt might be covered by his life, by his righteousness. If it's your desire this morning to be forgiven, to surrender your life to Jesus, or to rededicate your life to him, to surrender it in a fresh way, this Christmas, would you just lift up your hand while we're praying and I'll acknowledge it and we'll pray. I see your hand. Anybody else this morning? Just say, Jesus, I want to draw close to you or I want to lay my life at your feet for the first time. That gift of life is yours for the asking. Anybody this morning? Anyone else? Father, for those that would say yes to you, whether here in person or watching with us online, we pray that you would meet them in this place, Lord. It is, God, what you require, what you say in your word is, is that we simply have to come to you in faith, believing that you are. God, you're a rewarder of those who seek you. And so, God, I pray that you would meet these, that you would encourage them, that they would be reminded afresh that when we confess our sin, you are faithful and just to forgive us and to cleanse us from all unrighteousness. That there at the foot of the cross, we find cleansing, we find healing, we find restoration. Lord, we're welcomed into your very presence and family. That Jesus, you have prepared a place for us in heaven. Lord, I pray that you would encourage and that you would bless and minister to each of our hearts, Lord, that this Christmas there would be a fresh experience of all that this, this season represents, that in our brokenness, that in our hurt, Jesus, we would find you near, that we would experience your presence, we would experience healing, restoration and hope, with joy unspeakable. In Jesus' name.